There's a New Yorker story published years ago called The Dolt. It's by Donald Balthelm. And the final sentence reads thus. Endings are elusive. Middles are nowhere to be found. But worst of all is to begin, to begin, to begin. Welcome to Two Pages with MBS. This is the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. Now, I've been thinking very hard about what it means to begin over the last little while. Yes, I have a new book coming out in January, and yes, there's a connection there. I'm speaking today to Tom Vanderbilt, whose most recent book is Beginners, The Joy and Transformative Power of Lifelong Learning. Now, Tom's a journalist, so he has written a little about a lot of things. That's the nature of the beast. And it's put him in a pretty interesting position over and over and over again. Funny thing about writing a book about beginners is that as as a journalist, I feel like I am a perpetual beginner. I, I really am always plunging into some new field of knowledge that I really have the barest, you know, background in. Uh, so you you have to be, sort of become a quick study, and I'm a little bit perhaps a, a mile wide and an inch deep. But I mean, the benefit of that is that you know sometimes you can. A person who's not essentially siloed, as, as they say, in one field can skip between these fields and perhaps find connections or find connections between, between ideas or connections between people who might not otherwise meet. And you can sort of be the bridge between those ideas and perhaps in some ways make other ideas and, and things happen. Tom's written books, but also many articles in you know impressive places like Wired and Outside and the London Review of Books and the Financial Times. So I'm thinking, you know, when you find an idea, you get an angle, you get a hook, how do you decide what is a book and what isn't? Yeah, you know, writers are at heart romantics. And if, if, you, if you sort of love what you're doing, I, I sort of fall in love with every topic. But often these are flirtations. You know, you're, you're sort of hanging out with someone for a night, for a weekend, and then you're, you've kind of seen that, well, okay, we, we've sort of figured each other out and it's time to move on. So, but so, so a book, yeah, that, that has to, there has, has to be that depth, that, that interest, that idea that it's going to appeal to enough people and that, and, and that there isn't something already out there that is essentially doing what you're doing, which, which is a constant occupational hazard. Aha. So do I flirt or is this a serious romance? Now, look, a lot of us flirt with new ideas, new possibilities, new opportunities, but we often do very little else other than, you know, bat our eyelids at it. For the one big reason, we are bad at doing new things, particularly as we get older in life. So I asked Tom, how can we cope with the foolishness of starting a new venture? One reason I, I wrote the book, you know, was to, to put it out there that you are not alone, that this is a process, this is just a necessary process of, uh, of learning. Uh, the philosopher uh, Daniel Dennett has this, this idea that, you know, Without mistakes, there is no learning. You know, if you mm. al- if you already know how to do something, that's not learning. Uh, so, the, the, just to put it out there that you know, it, maybe some people will be better at it this thing in the beginning than others will. But that mistakes are just necessary. You you can learn from them. But just to kind of go in with this mindset that it's it's okay to look foolish. That that is an inherent part of the beginning process. And that what may look foolish might be you know this interesting learning going on that is a little bit out of your control. And that, that's part of the, the idea here too, is that when you leave your comfort zone, 
interesting things happen. I mean, that's where the growth happens. There's this yeah. cliche that, you know, nothing grows in a comfort zone. You have right. to go out there. And, you know, often there's various ways to look like a fool. In my own book, I you know, that, <laughs> that involved everything from um, almost, you know, essentially cracking my head open on the bottom of an ocean floor while surfing to right. sounding some really off notes when trying to sing. You know, and, and yes, would I have preferred the moment I began this vocal instruction to hit every note perfectly? Yes. But mm. then why would I even be in that vocal instruction? I, I needed Perfect. to get to that place. So I would just, you know, try to try to console people that, and also <laughs> no, no one's looking, you know, if you go to that's, a class with a bunch of other, key thing. bunch of other beginners, you know, people are concerned with their own, everyone's, <laughs> everyone's obsessed that everyone is looking at them. This sort of, yeah. I think they call it the spotlight effect in, in psychology when in reality, really no one is, unless someone's particularly interested in you. But um, <laughs> so just the mistakes you think are magnified in the eyes of others, they've probably not yeah. even noticed. You know, there was that great quote, I can't remember who said this, but it's like, I used to worry what other people thought of me. And then I realized nobody thinks of me. Right, <laughs> and it's, exactly. like, it's like, oh, that's actually a very freeing, freeing experience. Yes. Um, <laughs> And, you know, I believe you're going to, we're going to finish this interview with you giving us a solo song. So that's something for everybody to look forward to. I'm kidding. Tom's looking very anxious on the screen there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I will sing if you will play, you know, harmonica or, or ukulele or something or, um, oh, dear. Oh, no. <laughs> Have a ukulele. <laughs> no, no, but I'm, really but I'm a beginner with that. So I, I, I'm probably the perfectly accompaniment to you because I, can, uh, I, I can't play the uke that well, although I love it. It, it is my it's my foolish endeavor in some ways which is like i just play badly and sing badly to it and it's a source of joy for me um tom tell us about the book you've uh, selected to read uh, it's called range by david epstein uh the subtitle right, is why yes yes why generalists triumph in a specialized world and what what was particularly interesting to me about this book well first of all it came out right as mine was going off to the printer mm. and but it, it sort of answered and fulfilled for me something that went unfulfilled in my book. You know, when I first pitched my own book, I had this chapter in there and, and writers' pitches always change over time. And the book you think you're going to write it's never you the often, book. <laughs> yeah, you often don't write. So yeah. I, I I thought, well, you know, it should talking about beginners, I should probably have a chapter that looks at something like, you know, the world of science and and mm -hmm. tries to find an interesting case study of someone who was a beginner in a field and made some huge breakthrough or right you know, sort of change their own life. And I started dabbling around in that. I found some interesting things, but then, then I felt I, I wanted to keep the book a little bit pure in the sense that I, I wanted this to focus on only what essentially people did in their spare time and not to make right. it a manifesto for, for changing one's job or, or quitting one's job or having this mid-career pivot, but really this kind of what I thought overlooked aspect of, of leisure, for lack of a better word. Yeah, and, yeah. But what was great about range was that this was an entire book essentially delving into this, this notion I, I had about, you know, the idea that, that there are people that really didn't cleave so, so tightly to one specialized, you know, focus in, in science or any, any other kind of career dabbled and yeah. were able to bring some of that experience into this new field and, and created great things as a result. So it was just kind of a perfect distillation of this, this idea. So I was very happy to see it and read it. I suspect it was a, a brilliant marketing move because it, it maybe people are like me going, this is the book I need to at least have on my shelves to self-justify my lack of speciality in anything. So it becomes <laughs> a kind of a, a comfort blanket as much as, as anything else. 
Um, which two pages did you choose for us? Uh, 32 and 33 uh, <laughs> okay. in the chapter titled The Cult of the Head Start. And um, yeah. So uh, Tom Vanderbilt reading from David Epstein's book, Range. So Tom, over to you. Okay. And I'll just preface it briefly that because he mentions Tiger and Polgar, and he's referring to Tiger Woods, uh, the golfer, of course, mm -hmm. and uh, Judith Polgar, who was a is a chess grandmaster, the, the highest ranking uh, female player of, of all time, I believe, and part of this amazing family that was taught by Laszlo Polgar, their father, all three daughters were taught to play right. chess, and they all became quite good, some better than others. So anyway, yeah. We've been using the wrong stories. Tiger's story and the Polgar story give the false impression that human skill is always developed in an extremely kind learning environment. If that were the case, specialization that is both narrow and technical, and that begins as soon as possible, would usually work. But it doesn't even work in most sports. If the amount of early specialized practice in a narrow area were the key to innovative performance, savants would dominate every domain they touched, and child prodigies would always go on to adult eminence. As psychologist Ellen Winner, one of the foremost authorities on gifted children, noted, no savant has ever been known to become a big C creator who changed their field. There are domains beyond chess in which massive amounts of narrow practice make for grandmaster-like intuition. Like golfers, surgeons improve with repetition of the same procedure. Accountants and bridge and poker players develop accurate intuition through repetitive experience. Kahneman pointed to those domains' robust statistical regularities. But when the rules are altered just slightly, it makes experts appear to have traded flexibility for narrow skill. In research in the game of bridge, where the order of play was altered, experts had a more difficult time adapting to the new rules than did non-experts. When experienced accountants were asked in a study to use a new tax law for deductions that replaced a previous one, they did worse than novices. Eric Dane, a Rice University professor who studies organizational behavior, calls this phenomenon cognitive entrenchment. His suggestions for avoiding it are about the polar opposite of the strict version of the 10,000-hour school of thought. Vary challenges within a domain drastically and, as a fellow researcher put it, insist on having one foot outside your world. Scientists and members of the general public are about equally likely to have artistic hobbies, but scientists inducted into the highest national academies are much more likely to have avocations outside of their vocation. And those who have won the Nobel Prize are more likely still. Compared to other scientists, Nobel laureates are at least 22 times more likely to partake as an amateur actor, dancer, magician, or other type of performer. Nationally recognized scientists are much more likely than other scientists to be musicians, sculptors, painters, printmakers, woodworkers, mechanics, electronics tinkerers, glassblowers, poets, or writers of both fiction and nonfiction. And again, Nobel laureates are far more likely still. The most successful experts also belong to the wider, wider world. To him who observes them from afar, said Spanish Nobel laureate Santiago Ramón y Cajal, the father of modern neuroscience, it appears as though they are scattering, anticipating their energies, while in reality they are channeling and strengthening them. The main conclusion of work that took years of studying scientists and engineers, all of whom were regarded by peers as true technical experts, was that those who did not make a creative contribution to their field 
lacked aesthetic interests outside their narrow area. As psychologist and prominent creativity researcher Dean Keith Simonton observed, rather than obsessively focusing on a narrow topic, creative achievers tend to have broad interests. This breadth often supports insights that cannot be attributed to domain-specific expertise alone. Those findings are reminiscent of a speech Steve Jobs gave in which he famously recounted the importance of a calligraphy class to his design aesthetics. When we were designing the first Macintosh computer, it all came back to me, he said. If I had never dropped in on that single course in college, the Mac would never have had multiple typefaces or proportionally spaced fonts. But I think um, maybe one of the main takeaways for you, I'm suddenly thinking, is that a Nobel Prize could be exactly. working in your future because you've taken up <laughs> I've taken a ukulele (laughs) and I'm I'm another step closer to that trip to Sweden. So I'm quite excited about that. I should uh, I should probably email them to let them know that I'm taking it up and maybe I'm going to do Dungeons and Dragons as well. And who knows what might come from that. Um, How did your exploration into different skills you you learned and tried out five as a beginner? How has that influenced you as a writer? Do you think? That's a good question because it's it's something that's a little bit hard for me to self-analyze, and I, I do think mm. as a as a writer who has a very fluid uh, coverage of topics, let's say, you know, I, I I was already sort of living some of this mantra I tried to express in the book. I mean, I guess I guess for a true a true uh, self-realization of my own mantra here would be for me to write something like a screenplay. Right, poetry, even fiction, which I've only ever done the barest amount of. Um, but I also, you know, there is this thing where I, I do need to make a living, and the things I make a living in are generally nonfiction. So, but, yeah. but, uh, you know, I think it's a, it's an interesting question. I often thought, well, you know, has has this sort of thing actually could could I take something away from my project in what I did with in what Epstein is talking about in range? How did it change my own life? I think more important than my own my own career, perhaps, is just my own sense of self and my own personality yeah. and my own sense of well being. That taking on all of these activities uh, really expanded the notion of of what it was possible for me to do. Change change the notion of what I should be doing. Uh, added a whole new set of let's say nouns to my to my own life resume, as 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 right. Jesse Itzler calls it. Um, you know. That for me was sort of a, a bigger takeaway. I, I'm not sure that my writing has changed all that much, but uh, yeah. So the, if yeah, that explains it, and a sense of self, it does. What do you What do you know now, Tom, about the art of beginning and the art of learning that you might not have known before you kind of ventured into this book? I mean, I guess I have a stronger sense of of resilience. Let's say about. You know, and I think it is a process. No, no matter what the thing is, there is just a, there are a series of steps you go through, a, ser- a, sense, yeah. a series of feelings you have, and those are both <laughs> yeah. positive. Those are both positive and negative. I mean, for me, the yeah. positives were just that sense of novelty. I mean, just awakens the brain, awakens the self. You're mm. you're, you're moving your, your brain and your and your body in in new ways. There's there's a whole new vocabulary to to whatever it is, sailing or gardening. You're just sort of in love with this, all this new information. Right. Uh, 
there's new stuff you can buy. Let's not forget how fun it is to buy. To <laughs> exactly. Buy, to buy I've got a gadget I mean, up here. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, my favorite part of trying to learn to draw was essentially visiting art supply stores, which I was <laughs> kind of doing already. But now I really had a real reason to, <laughs> to go there and lay down some serious coin. Um, yeah. But, you know, uh, and then the negatives, the, those, you know, like like we talked about before, there's that sense of feeling foolish. Yeah. There's, um, you know, just... The, the mistakes you're going to make and mistakes tend to be very similar in a discipline, no right. matter who the person is, we all sort of make them. I mean, in the, in the field of, of road cycling, for example, have you ever, have you ever seen people out and they have those, you know, shoes that you clip into your pedals yeah, yeah. and so you can really, you know, spin those pedals. Everyone who cycles at some point falls over in the beginning because they can't <laughs> exactly. un- unclip I mean, the damn thing. So it's just, yeah, exactly. everyone feels like an idiot yet. Everyone does it. And, the ten-year veteran can look over and say, "Ah, yeah, I remember I did that once." So um, <laughs> exactly. So right. there's both uh, you know positives uh, and negatives, and, and and a process. I mean, I, I think it is mm. you know we're we're all we're all sort of beginners uh, in a unique way, but also in the same way. Yeah, I mean, there's that learning hierarchy. I guess it's just like you started unconsciously incompetent, where you're like, "I don't even know I'm bad." <laughs> And then you move to consciously competent, incompetent, where you're like, oh, I'm bad. <laughs> I'm really bad at this. Then consciously competent, which is like, I'm beginning to master it. And then unconsciously competent, which is when it becomes habitual and kind of in the bones. Yeah, and- I, I love that formulation. I mean, it, it does remind me of something, you know, from, from let's say, the world of singing. Uh, you know, yeah. not only did I not know how to sing, I didn't even really know what singing instruction was. I mean, I sort of imagined... <laughs> you know, a sort of cozy little room with a, with a piano and my instructor would just start playing these songs and I would sort of, you know, just give it my best. <laughs> and we, we kind of a lounge singer, I would just be belting it out, yeah. but it really wasn't like that at all. I mean, we, we really had to, you know, essentially go through this whole more fundamental deep process of, of breaking me down, breaking down decades of, of sort of bad habits bad or, or just, bad just, phrasing or whatever yeah yeah just just habits and I, I really had to kind of reevaluate my whole relationship to language which is interesting as a writer because sung language is very different than spoken language even though it's the same uh-huh. action essentially but um so a lot a lot of singing instruction to me seemed very elemental and simplistic and childlike and i yeah. felt like sort of an idiot doing it yet it, it was just essential so so that was something I had to learn about a lot of these things was just the, the very pedagogy of it was, mm. was different than I imagined it would be. Did you learn, do you have any insight about what it takes to survive the conscious incompetent phase? Because it feels that that's the place where I speak for myself, but I think I'm speaking for some others as well, which is like, I want to quit. And I'm like, you know what? I am a middle-aged man. And I have constructed my life to be mostly successful at most of the stuff that I do. There's not a whole lot that I stumble around being foolish at. And when I try and take on something new, I feel that awkwardness of, God, I didn't even know that this was bad. <laughs> I didn't even know that I didn't know this. It's, it's, there's definitely a pull to kind of go, well, maybe I could just go and do something else instead. And it would be easier or faster or, or less spotlighting. Ooh. What does it take to get through this, Tom? Yeah, well, well first, I, w- I would just advise that, you know, you don't have to be masochistic about it. You know, in- unless right. someone is paying you to learn something, there's, there's no, <laughs> you know, life is short. You don't have to stick with something that you're genuinely right. not feeling the love. I mean, you might be feeling the love. 
you're just not feeling the talent or the 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 mm. aptitude, and that's fine. But you know, if you're really just not enjoying it on some level, I, you know, I would I would advise just move on. I mean, there's such there's such a I believe there's such a such a cult of of mastery and a, a negative mm. aspect, a negative idea about quitting. You know that. Yeah, that, yeah. But again, these it's it's okay to dabble. It's okay to realize something isn't your isn't your jam. Um, but when you feel it is, yet you're not making the progress you hope, you know, I, I would, one thing is to just not go into something with massive goals. I think that's just a, a major problem people have. And people uh-huh. were taught endlessly to, to come up with goals and, and write these down and, and have very clear paths that we want to take and maybe even have a time frame. But I think that is often a road to disappointment because those goals can right. become, you tend to be making those goals, as you said, during this period of unconscious incompetence. So you don't know what the goals should even be because you don't know how long it's right. going to take you to, to become even remotely good at something. So mm-hmm. those the goals you set will come back to haunt you and will, I think, get in the way of the thing you're trying to, to learn and just make you feel bad. So I like l- learning something like juggling. I mean, the, juggling five balls is sort of the thing that separates a really great juggler from, you know, a right. pretty good juggler. Five is this magic number. Yeah. And it, it can take, you know, a year. And so yeah. I, I heard this going in. I thought, well, maybe I'll try for five. But to be honest, I'd really be, you know, four. <laughs> <laughs> Even three. I mean, you go into a room and ask 100 people who here can juggle three balls. You're, you're going to get a very small number of people raising their right. hand. So I, I just think, you know, Beginning with very small goals is just the way to build confidence and 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 give yourself that mm. emotional ladder that you can keep climbing that makes you feel like you are making some progress because you know and progress can be so minute. I mean, this is yeah, yeah. And the the last thing I'll say is that progress is not always uh, a linear process upward. <laughs> it's never any... a linear process. It's never a linear process. But, but right. I, th- I feel like people feel like that's only only applies to them like oh that that person right. is just getting it and i'm going backwards but this has been studied again and again and yeah, yeah. juggling for example one day jugglers were doing a hundred cycles of juggling three balls the next day they couldn't do 10. there are yeah. just these just these hiccups that happen which have to do with you know the sometimes the brain you're reconsolidating memories the brain trying to make these new linkages the brain communicating with your muscles and it doesn't always sometimes you know quite work so that's when yeah. people advise all sorts of tricks like changing up your practice. Um, mm. But again, so I, yeah, I would, I would think. That's interesting. Yeah. You know, I learned, I, I, I can mostly juggle three balls. Um, and what I, what I really appreciate about how I was taught to do it was I was taught to, to let the balls drop <laughs> because the secret of juggling is, is in the throw rather than obsessing about the catch. And so you, and I just remember just the resistance and throwing a ball up in the air and letting it just go splat on the ground <laughs> and how counterintuitive that felt. Is there something about learning, which is get to the edge about where the mistake is and wallow in the mistake? Does that help? Do you th- yeah. I mean, that, that's a great point. I mean, and and that, that is what you bring up is, is a very good and established juggling practice technique and um you know it just it 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 reminds me of what we were just talking about as well which is that Mm. i thought juggling was about somehow tracking every ball in flight with your eyes and this is this is the exact mistake beginners make they're trying to 
throw up each of these three balls independently and then follow each of them and you see their head whipping around. <laughs> it's simply exactly. impo- it's impossible to do that. So it's really right. about establishing this almost automatic pattern that you then just catch sure. automatically. But it it's hard it, it's hard for us to, to overcome that. But I think you're right. You know, there there are there are mis- there are mistakes I think that that harm us or that that don't produce progress and there are mistakes that that do. Mm. And I, I always use the example of when my daughter was trying to learn to ride a bicycle and I put the training wheels on. She was about yeah. three. And this is a very common thing that people do because you think, well, it, it allows them to ride a bike without falling over. Mm-hmm. But what it doesn't do is give you a sense of what a bike actually feels like. Right. This is errorless learning. Is you, I think you Exactly. Yes. And, you know, yeah. So, you know, she what happened was that she went really fast and tried to turn and fell over. So yeah. and it was an error, but it was an error that taught her nothing about how to actually ride a bike. Whereas, so I eventually, like a lot of people do, I took the pedals off, made it into what they call a balance bike. That was, you know, every time you felt like you were going to fall, you actually had to correct it yourself. And, and mm. I think she did fall once on that even. But um, so the, they became productive mistakes. But it involved, it's that you know. So the dropping balls is is productive in juggling. Um, I'm trying I'm trying to link this back to cycling, but uh, but yeah. a, anyway. So it, this idea of productive mistakes is really helpful. Is there a way of actively coming to mistakes so that they there's a better chance that they can become productive? Because I feel often with mistakes, the the temptation is to hurry on as fast as you can. Like there's nothing to see here. Keep moving, people. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and I'm wondering how you help somebody to stop and go, if this mistake was productive, how, what would I be learning here? That's a good question. Yeah, I think I, I really tried to have a relationship with my mistakes without mm-hmm. at the same time letting them harden. I mean, there's, there's a, a fine line between a mistake and, and a bad habit. Right. And that was happening to me quite a bit in, in surfing, for example, where – I just found it hard, as as many people do, to sort of jump up on this this moving board at fairly so high speed with with waves around you. <laughs> it's so it's impossible. <laughs> I found it hard to not look down at my at the board and at my feet because I wanted to make sure I was I was actually on this thing. Right. Uh, the problem with that, though, is it, it kind of kicks off this whole neuromuscular, you know, sort of adaptation where you sort of shift your weight forward in the very act of looking downward yeah. that can make shift your body weight. It can, it could push the nose of the board underwater. I mean, surfing right. is, is maddening for this because a lot of the behaviors you think would correct the mistake you're making actually only make it worse. Right. You know, um, try, you know, it, one, they call it purling or nose diving. This, this to this day torments me in surfing. When, when you take this plunge and you you yeah. sometimes go down in a very frightening way, you know sometimes uh, you have to pedal paddle faster into that wave that you think is about to plunge you downward. Mm-hmm. When your impulse is to sort of lean back on the board and maybe right. slow down, and and so there's just it's just filled with things like that that at, at the moment are very hard to actually deal with but it's interesting there's so there's so much about so many of these things that the, the secret to mastery turns out to be counterintuitive it's like from juggling go don't don't track the balls <laughs> for for surfing it's like don't look at your feet but kind of shift your weight weight back 
you know, it's like drawing. It's like don't draw what you see because <laughs> what you're seeing is not at all what actually is there. It's like, you know, turn the thing upside down and draw the thing upside down so you're forced to reevaluate what it actually looks like. Um, yeah, that's a really astute observation. I think it brings up an idea here that often what gets most powerfully in the way of learning a skill is our brain, is our conscious knowledge. Right. And this, because, you know, skill learning is mostly unconscious. I mean, yeah. it, you know, when, it, if you went outside, if a listener to this podcast, you know, went outside after this and I, I said, try to analyze how you're walking, like really think about how you're walking, study your walking and look down at your feet, you know, you, you, you get slightly worse at it. You know, we, we're all, <laughs> that's right. We are all expert walkers. We've put in our 10,000 hours and yeah. The secret to that is we we don't think about it at all, right. except maybe if there's some strange you know glitch where we trip on the pavement and then it's never our fault; it's the pavement's fault. But um, right. so th this is something that you know you just have to let go and let your analytical mind go. You can use that analytical mind to analyze mistakes after the fact by by looking at footage and stuff like that. But in you know yeah. in the moment, just and this is hard for people, especially you know, let's say middle-aged people who are really goal-oriented and, and progress-oriented and want to know, want <laughs> like to know me. why they're making a mistake <laughs> they're making. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. You, you, you explored five new things to, new skills, things to begin uh, in the book. Are you learning something new now? Uh, a, a, a little bit. I mean, number, I mean, number one, I, I moved into a house uh, in the first time in my adult life. I've been a long time apartment dweller, and right. I, I always had a building superintendent or some similar figure to take care of stuff. <laughs> so any homeowner, right. I would say, you know, becomes a beginner in a thousand ways, <laughs> mm. from plumbing issues to you know. Uh, gutters to yeah, you name it. And, and this kind of speaks, to, you know, in a way this speaks to the, the, the golden age of learning that I often refer to that I, th I think we are living in, in that, yeah. uh, the, which largely involves the presence of YouTube and online mm. videos that, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm garbage at repair manuals, which is ironic being, being a writer, but often I think they're terribly written, but I think reading, and this gets to that thing about how we learn skills. It's a very difficult way to actually, try to embody uh, an activity or a physical skill. Yeah. Uh, we, we are, we are mimetic creatures you know, born to imitate other humans. We're social yeah. learners. So yeah. to see a plumber actually unclogging a toilet on YouTube and just telling you, breaking it down step-by-step step, what you, you can watch his body language, exactly what he does that, that, that is a great way to learn. So, so, you know, any homeowner out there, you are, you've, you've gone through this process. Uh, but I was, and there's a few other things, you know, uh, indoor climbing, for example, I'm trying oh, yeah. to sort of um, get better at that with, with my daughter. And it's, when I say get better, it's one of these disciplines that the lines of what getting better are, are very clear because each climb is numbered. Yeah, it's, you know, it's rated, five like it's a three point six or a five point one <laughs> yeah, exactly. or something so, like that, and you're like, I can climb a five point oh, I can't climb a five point two. Yeah, so like I think uh, I'm not even sure where I am right now, but there's a number that for me is like the five ball juggling that I'm not sure I'll ever get there, but I'll just keep yeah, I keep at it because it's yeah. it's an interesting um, activity. So, um, but I, I'm always so, you know sort of I, I don't want to sound like I'm a what's the word you know serial non-monogamist when it comes to skill learning that i'm always looking for some you know that i'm, yeah. a, I'm a hopeless dilettante although um <laughs> there is that notion but you know i i 
because my point here is that I'm, I'm still trying to work on the things I set out to learn in the book yes. and those still, uh, you know, entertain me. And, and I'm trying to, they're all deep skills. I think that, that you can um, make, make progress with, which I think you know, applies to, to many things. I'm looking forward to the photo of you juggling on a surfboard. I think then you'll have really, uh, you have really hit something. <laughs> if, I mean, if you go, if you go to my uh, Instagram account, I did juggle while riding my bike, no handed. I mean, mostly to amuse my daughter and then also to show that I could do it, uh, which, 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 but I almost, I almost <laughs> cracked my skull Died. open on that. So I, in some ways, surfing would be easier once you got a nice, stable, long wave. You wouldn't want That's to juggle right. while you were catching the wave, but once you no. were up, I'm sure, yeah, I'm yeah. sure Kelly Slater could do it right now. But <laughs> <laughs> hey, Tom, has exploring what it takes to learn taught you anything about what it takes to teach? Like, how do I how do I teach better? Excellent question, and I'm not really someone who has taught, although after doing this book and, and trying some of these skills, I have in some cases become, you know, I have done the, the barest beginnings of, of teaching. And I, I think that th yeah. this is a, a bit of a cliche, but it's also under, still underrated. I think that, that, you know, one of the best ways you can actually learn is, is to teach. And there's this mantra yeah, in, sure. you know, medical school, see one, do one, teach one. And, and that's right. Um, I think, you know, one thing that, you see these these online courses out there like Masterclass, which I think are, and they'll have you know learn filmmaking with Martin mm. Scorsese or something like that. Um, I think I really think those are more interesting as as almost profiles or yeah, yeah, like into those people themselves. I mean, but it, it raises this idea. You know, we 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 revere masters, you know, often rightfully so, but they are often not the people we actually should be learning from, at least at that beginning stage. I mean, mm. what you really need is a teacher that still knows what it was like to not be, not be that good. I mean, you know, Lionel Messi, you know, amazing football player probably can't ex break down step-by-step step no. what he's doing. Uh, and this is an interesting thing that both the novice and the expert share. Neither in a sense know what they're doing, right? just, but for different reasons. I mean, the, the novice truly <laughs> doesn't know what they're doing. Right. The, ma the master, you know, doesn't, really consciously know what they're doing anymore right, that 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 um that model again which is you're moving from unconscious incompetence and then you're moving to unconscious competence exactly both of them yeah. are unconscious yeah, yeah and it's so interesting I, that you look at some of the very best soccer coaches like um pep somebody rather from manchester city yep. yeah mm -hmm. and he's like he was a average professional soccer player he was okay at it but he didn't, he wasn't a star. He didn't really, he wasn't no Lionel Messi by any means. Um, but there's something about being good enough to understand it, but not being naturally talented enough that you don't have to understand it allows you to perhaps be in a position to teach. Yeah. And I think, you know, just having that ability to, to still break things down, but I think even more important than any question of ability is just, just empathy to 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 mm. to know to remember what it was like to know what that beginner is is going right. through and not simply get frustrated and say I don't know why you're not getting this I everyone knows how to do this or or or, <laughs> or, or, or some something like that and to just you know be a, a shoulder to cry on and a, and a you know a, a helping hand uh, yeah I remember so, my uh, my my nephew George trying to teach me some computer game he's like just just 
just do what just do what I'm doing. Just do it. Just give it to me. I'll do it for you." And I'm like, "You know what? He, you know, he's he's ten, so I'm not expecting him to be a master <laughs> trainer in this. But this is the worst experience of learning I've had for a while because you're like, it, it taught me nothing. I didn't understand what was going on." Yeah, yeah, yeah. It is difficult to learn with children. Uh, for an article I was doing, I was I was um, playing the video game Fortnite actually with my daughter, mm-hmm. and I was I was in a a set of squads with her friends, and I was so routinely labeled a bot, which in video game language is just like a noob. It's it's just the worst insult. Yeah, uh, because I, and I was trying to learn on the fly, which is very difficult and stressful when you have a lot of judgmental ten year olds around. <laughs> <laughs> They're all judgmental ten. Um, Tom, I've, I've loved the conversation. What, what hasn't yet been said that should be said in this conversation between you and me? I mean, I, I would just say, you know, I think there are so many self stories, the stories that people tell themselves. And, and I was telling myself for, for many years, just about, you know, what it is to take up a skill or to try to, mm. to learn something new. And this idea, and there's been a lot of messaging in in this other direction of especially in this day and age of increased i think professionalization and the the ever ever sort of spreading uh, element in our lives of of mass media in that you know we're we're always looking at people doing amazing things which is which which is great but you know it sort of leaves out this idea that there are a lot of things that we, we could take a try at and maybe not be anywhere near as good at, but these things could still bring so much pleasure mm. to our lives. And I'll just use the example of singing again, which I think I, I heard so often from people I was talking to when I was working on the book, like, oh, I love to sing, but I'm just, I'm tone deaf. Yeah. And they've, they've actually studied this. Hardly anyone is physically tone deaf. This is a very remote, uh, a very remote medical condition. Most yeah. people are. My just... brother has it for sure, but I think. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm, yeah, I'm kidding. Yeah. No, but I mean, most people are just out of practice, or so they've never had the practice. They do, we mm. don't sing enough together in public. We we've lost the ability. We t- we thus yeah. people who do do it, we tend to think they're this sort of freakish, you know, God given talent that oh, well, they are a singer. You know, we are not. Yeah, yeah. We are not singers, and I, I would think you know we can all be singers. We can all, you know, no, no one's. No one sort of says, you know, that they were just born to mm. serve a tennis ball because that's a very odd motion yeah. that takes a lot of work. You could be a little bit more coordinated, sure, but um, but we tend to think you know singing is just a thing that you open your mouth and there it is. But it really takes a lot of work. It's a motor skill, uh, and it's something that I think you know anyone could do at any age. You can you can get better. You can feel yes. better as you get better, bringing more pleasure. But at the end of the day, it's not about how how good you are. It's just what is it doing for you? Yeah. And I right. found that even singing badly, practicing singing badly, uh, you know, failing to hit my my scales, your high C, yeah. yeah, it still brought a lot of pleasure and just you know, brought all these things that we we always hear that we're missing in, in modern day life about focus and mindfulness and contemplation and relaxation and happiness and the list yes. goes on. When I first moved to Toronto, I signed up for a hip hop class. You know, I've always loved dancing and, you know, I actually know how to do a quick step and a waltz, but, you know, I'd like to be cool. So I thought I'd do some b-boying, some break dancing. So anyhow, I signed up and I was in this class and, you know, one, I was the only beginner. Everybody else would be doing this for 
long enough that they look good. Number two, I was at least 10 years older than anybody else. And three, I definitely had the least melanin skin pigmentation of anybody else. It was awkward. And I wimped out. I never went back. And I regret that. So be foolish. And you know, perhaps more profoundly than that, be willing to unlearn as well as learn. Explore forgetting, explore letting go so that there is this courage and this capacity and this enthusiasm for the new thing. You can find out about Tom at his website, tomvanderbilt.com. Um, you'll find out about his books and his articles there. Thank you again for listening. I really do appreciate it. Um, reviews always welcome on your podcast app. Thank you for that if you've already done it. The Duke Humphreys, I should tell you about. It's the free membership site where come to the website mbs.works um, and you can get access to unreleased episodes, to transcripts if you like to read the stuff. I certainly like that um, and the like, free downloads. And I would also just make this request. If this conversation struck a chord for you, who else in your life might like to hear it as well? We grow this audience person by person, word of mouth by word of mouth recommendation. So if you're willing to make a recommendation to somebody who you think is interested in beginning and learning and gaining new skills and expanding the possibilities of who they are, please pass this conversation on. You're awesome and you're doing great. <laughs>